To Feminist Current, I'm Megan Murphy. The Liberal Party of Canada recently introduced Bill C-78, which proposes a number of changes to Canada's Divorce Act, including better addressing the issue of what is referred to as family violence, changes to terminology like custody and access, and encouraging parties to use family dispute mediation services as an alternative to court. In order to better understand the proposed changes and their potential impact on women, I spoke with Susan Boyd. Susan is a professor emerita at the Allard School of Law at the University of British Columbia, where she held the chair in feminist legal studies from 1992 to 2015. Susan is a long-standing member of the editorial board of the Canadian Journal of Women and the Law, as well as a board member of the Women's Legal Education and Action Fund. Her book, Child Custody, Law, and Women's Work, remains one of the few feminist treatments of child custody law in Canada. Her latest co-authored book is Autonomous Motherhood, A Socio-Legal Study of Choice and Constraint. I spoke with her over the phone from her home in Vancouver. Here's that interview. Recently, the federal government tabled Bill C-78, which, if passed, will update federal divorce laws for the first time in 20 years. Can you explain what the proposed changes are in this bill? Yeah, so I'm going to focus on four key things, and then we can go into more detail. Um, The first big thing is that the reforms would eliminate the terms custody and access um, in favor of terminology that is supposed to sound less conflict-ridden and, I guess, combative. So the new terminology would be parenting orders and those and agreements, and those things would allocate parenting time uh, and also parenting decision-making. So that's the first key area. Uh, the second thing is the bill would further quite an expansive definition And it would make family violence a more central factor in determining the best interests of children. Uh, So that's a big change. Thirdly, there would be, for the purposes of deciding the best interests of children in what we now know as (laughs) custody and access disputes, there's a much more elaborate definition of various factors that judges must use to consider the best interests of children. Uh, So it's a mandatory directive to judges. And uh, in conjunction with that, uh, there's also a provision that tells judges that of all the different factors, the primary consideration is to be children's safety and security and well-being. And then uh, the fourth thing I would highlight is that guidelines would be introduced, again for the first time in the Divorce Act, about what should happen when parents uh, propose to relocate or, or change their residence or change the residence of the child, I guess I should say. So those are the four key things. There's a few, there are other, you know, tweaks and so forth, but I would think those are the four key. Mm-hmm. 
And before we get into the details and impacts of those changes, I'm curious to know more about the history of divorce law in Canada. I mean, what what's changed? How far have we come? What would happen to women who got divorced, say, pre-1968, when the first Divorce Act was introduced in Canada? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, things have really changed since then. Um, so before 1968, there literally was no uniform, there was no one divorce law for all Canadians. It really depended on what the province said where you lived. And so, for example, to take the most extreme case, um, neither Newfoundland nor Quebec had divorce laws in those provinces. So literally, if you wanted a divorce in those provinces, you had to apply to Parliament, essentially, for permission to divorce. Um, So needless to say, that constrained people from even, you know, attempting to divorce uh, in the face of an unhappy or difficult marriage. And then if we look for before 1968 at the provinces that did have divorce laws, they were, um, to be blunt, very sexist. So they often made it harder for a wife to obtain a divorce than for a husband. Um, They were mostly what we call fault-based. So, for example, you had to show some bad behavior by your spouse before you could apply for a divorce. And basically, wives very often had to show more bad behavior by the husband than the husband would have to show for the wife. Um, So, for example, if she was able to prove that he was uh, adulterous, she might also have to prove that he had deserted her or was cruel or something. So extra grounds had to be shown. And then... If a wife herself was found to have been at fault, for example, if she was adulterous or she had left the marriage, in other words, deserted the husband, or, you know, shock horror, if she had uh, embarked on a lesbian relationship, um, that would have very negative consequences for her own ability to obtain financial support from her husband. And keeping in mind in those days, wives were often quite economically dependent within a marriage on the husband. And it would also have negative consequences for her ability to obtain custody of her children. And the only thing I'd add to the pre-1968 story um, is that a lot of people would say we had a maternal presumption in child custody matters before that time. And what that meant was uh, it's commonly believed that especially for younger children under seven years of age, uh, that there was basically a rule that young children should go to the mother, not the father. And that was based on all kinds of stereotypes about, you know, women being better with children and more tender. It was called the tender years doctrine. And um, what I did a number of years ago was review lots and lots of the cases from that pre-1968 period. And the bottom line is this was no maternal presumption. Um, What generally speaking courts would say is that if all other things are equal, between the father and the mother in relation to their claim for custody, we will consider giving a younger child to the mother. 
that might be best. But the trouble was, all other things were very rarely equal. So to refer back to what I said earlier, quite often if the mother had been found to be at fault, if she had taken up a new relationship or left the marriage or maybe even had worked outside the home so she was perceived not to be putting her children first, judges could easily say, okay, all things are not equal here, so we're not going to even you know, look at this notion of 10 years doctrine. So it wasn't such a great situation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, how much was the law ameliorated with the 1986 Divorce Act? You know, what were the changes between um, those two acts in Canada? Yeah, so basically, 1968, in addition to many different fault-based grounds upon which you could claim divorce, they added a so-called no-fault option. So if you live separate and apart for a certain number of years, basically you could apply for divorce. So that was an improvement. Um, In terms of custody, they cleaned that up a bit, but they still said you could consider the conduct, which really meant misconduct of parents. And um, they did not institutionalize the best interests of the child test in the legislation. And so what that meant was children's interests were not put first and foremost. And I think if you look at case law from that post-1968 period, you do find that there is excessive focus on what was perceived to be misconduct, like adultery, like if somebody was engaged in a lesbian or gay relationship, you know, those sorts of things. There was perhaps excessive attention on that kind of conduct as opposed to were you a caring parent or not. So that was that's a real quick summary of 1968. Um, then in 1986, so that was a really major overhaul, and essentially they reduced the ways in which you could claim divorce, apply for a divorce, to three. One was adultery. They still kept adultery in. The second was cruelty, and that could be mental or or physical cruelty, what we might now think of as abuse. Um, And then the third was basically no-fault divorce. So living separate and apart for a year uh, meant that you could apply for a divorce. So that was a big change. And, every, you know, a lot of people touted that as a huge improvement because um, the idea was if we're not so focused on conduct, then we are going to focus more on, for example, the best interests of children and basically what people needed after um, divorce to make sure that if there were children of the marriage, they were well cared for, etc. So they also um, clarified in legislation something that judges have been saying quite a bit, which is that only the best interests of the child should be taken into account in custody and access matters. And then here's what's interesting. The uh, legislation also said that joint custody could be ordered, And it also directed lawyers to discuss mediation as an option with their clients. And those two things are notable because 
1986, we had seen a lot of activism by the Fathers' Rights Movement for at least a decade, and they'd been lobbying hard for a joint custody presumption, what we might now call a shared parenting presumption, Uh, and also they'd been lobbying hard for mediation because they said judges were biased against fathers. So I would say that legislation in 1986 was kind of like a compromise. Uh, There were submissions by women's groups against joint custody presumptions and pointing out the difficulties that would arise for many mothers, uh, especially in cases involving domestic abuse. So what happened in the end was there was no presumption put in the Divorce Act in 1986 in favor of joint custody. However, the the provisions that were added, I would say, to satisfy the father's rights um, movement arguments was that they said uh, judges should consider uh, ordering as much contact with each parent as was consistent with the best interests of the child. So that was directing judges to, you know, move towards something like what we might call joint custody. And it also mandated that judges should take into account the willingness of each parent to facilitate contact between the child and the other parent. And that's what we commonly refer to as the friendly parent rule. And uh, that's been very controversial because it often has meant that if a mother, for example, expresses concerns about children being with a father for a lot of time or, you know, contact being too extensive because she's worried about the children's safety or perhaps her own safety and handing over the children, Um, unless she's got really, you know, good evidence that persuades a judge that her concerns about safety are valid, um, she can be viewed as an unfriendly parent. And some judges would actually go so far as to then give custody to the father because he was saying, oh, you know, I'm very willing to give lots of contact between the child and the mother. So um, those those provisions were very uh, controversial and have been the subject of a lot of debate, especially in the women's movement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now... There are changes in the bill specifically related to, as you mentioned, what's referred to as family violence, Mm -hmm. um, to include definitions of family violence that go beyond just physical abuse, to include emotional and sexual violence as well. I wonder what you think about these changes. I mean, it sounds good. I mean, our understanding of abuse and domestic violence obviously should go beyond just you know, physical violence, because of course, abuse is much more complex than that. But yeah, I wonder, I wonder what you think about these changes. I wonder what you think about that language, family violence, Mm -hmm. um, and how these changes will affect women who are leaving abusive marriages. Yeah, really, really um, interesting. As I think I indicated earlier, I do think it's very positive that we now have explicit uh, definitions and language in the Divorce Act, or we we will probably get this, uh, on family violence. I mean, there's lots of controversies about what it should be called. 
the British Columbia legislation that was introduced a few years ago also uses family violence. It's, you know, to my taste, a little bit generic. Um, we know that um, violence or abuse within intimate relationships is still highly gendered, much more male violence against women and male violence against children. And so this term you know, arguably erases that gender dynamic. But I'm not surprised they used it. It's, you know, this legislation has become very gender neutral. And it kind of almost has to because it also encompasses same-sex relationships. So it's really hard to have legislation now that refers specifically to women and men. And anyway, it's it's become a complicated thing. So... Um, so putting those criticisms aside, I think it's good that this reference to family violence is in the legislation. As you indicate, the definition is quite expansive. It also includes harassment, financial abuse, threats to kill or harm an animal or damaged property, all of which have been you know, found to be risk factors in relation to um, family violence, in relation to people, etc., so that's all really good. Um, also, the language in the best interest test indicates that it's mandatory that a judge will take family, any family violence into account in determining a child's best interest. So, you know, there's no way that a judge can wiggle out of that if they're uncomfortable with considering abuse. So that's great. Um, the problem is I'm still not sure how much easier women are going to find it to leave abusive relationships. And, and that's because, you know, just even taking that decision to leave, uh, financial constraints remain a huge factor. Fear remains a huge factor. You know, question mark as to what extent, you know, women are going to know about this language and some federal law, and also we don't really know for sure in practice how seriously family violence will actually be taken if there is a custody dispute and it goes to court. And the reason I say that is, as I mentioned, British Columbia introduced very similar changes a few years ago. I've done some research on the uh, early case law. And although the good news is judges are paying more explicit attention to family violence and they're referring to the definition uh, in the legislation, but even where they find that it does exist or that it existed, they are too easily dismissing its impact um, when they're making parenting orders. So to be very explicit, abusive men, some abusive men are still too often getting some form of parenting time with their children and or decision-making authority in relation to their children. And having either that time with the children or the decision-making power in conjunction with the mother uh, quite simply gives the opportunity to somebody who wants to continue a pattern of abuse to do so. And so to summarize, 
I like the language I'm seeing in the proposed reforms to the Divorce Act in relation to family violence, but I still have questions about um, how well it will be put into practice, you know, by judges, by lawyers, by mediators, by anybody working within the system. Right. The bill also bolsters the presumption that shared parenting is best, which you discussed briefly a little bit earlier, um, in terms of child custody and maintains language that implies a goal of maximum contact with both parents. I wonder what your thoughts are or your concerns are in terms of, of that, those inclusions in the bill. Yeah, I'm, um, I was actually almost shocked, but perhaps I'm being naive, <laughs> that we still see this maximum parenting time section in the proposed uh, Divorce Act, as well as the friendly parent rule making a reappearance. Because in many ways, they do bolster an assumption that shared parenting is best. So, like, on the one hand, we don't see a presumption per se in the Divorce Act that shared parenting or joint custody or any of those things uh, are best. But putting these other uh, provisions together, the maximum parenting time and the friendly parent section, I'm concerned that we will see judges saying, uh, as they are quite prone to do because, you know, judges don't want to cut a parent out of a child's life if they don't have to. So saying, oh, we need to give as much time as possible to each parent. And, well, there might be some evidence of family violence, but, hey, that's in the past. You know, the abuser has taken an anger management course. We're optimistic for the future. So I'm just worried that that these um, maximum time sections are going to almost trump the effort to put a lot of emphasis on family violence. Right. And as you mentioned, if the bill passes, the words custody and access will be replaced by parenting orders and parenting time. What's the reasoning behind this? You know, is this a positive change from your perspective? So um, this is a really interesting one, and it's been the subject of debate for, I would say, decades now. Many, many people in the legal community and the social work mediation community have been lobbying to take away these words, custody and access. And actually, in practice, in many mediations and in many, many court decisions, um, mediators and judges are already using the quote-unquote, new language of parenting orders, parenting time. Um, the reason that many people want to get rid of the the old terms, custody and access, is that they're viewed as um, enhancing conflict. Um, they're also viewed as denoting some form of property rights over children. You know, what, you have custody of your child, you get access to your child. There's a way in which that almost sounds like having property rights, and that's obviously distasteful. So I kind of see that. But then the thing that most troubles me and that research from other countries shows is actually wrong is people think that using these nice new terms, parenting orders, parenting time, decision-making, responsibility, etc., they think that using this new language is going to reduce conflict between parents over children. 
And of course, that would be a great thing. Everybody knows conflict is bad for children. There's plenty of research on that. But Australia, back in the 90s, did exactly what we're proposing to do now. They took away custody and access and used these new terms. And I believe England did it around the same time. And research from those countries shows the conflict did not diminish. There were plenty of other things for people to dispute in the legislation, um, even with the lovely new language. So I just am not convinced there's going to be a positive impact um, removing this language. And I'm just not sure how much difference it's going to make. Might not be better, might not be worse, although in some ways I think it tends towards shared parenting and that could be worse for the reasons I mentioned earlier. Right, right. Um, It sounds like there's an effort to push people away from using the court system and towards mediation and collaborative family law instead. Uh, Why is that? I mean, do you think that it's more productive or it's beneficial for people going through divorces to, to use mediation instead of the court system in terms of revol- resolving conflict and, and dealing with custody, et cetera, et cetera? Mm-hmm. So obviously going to court is no fun <laughs> for anyone really, and it can be extremely costly. Um, in fact, many people say going to court is beyond the means of most, you know, the vast majority of, of people these days. And, Getting, just getting access to a lawyer, right, is uh, actually very costly and beyond mm-hmm. many people's capability. So, you know, there are many ways in which one can see this move towards what a lot of people call alternative dispute resolution, out-of-court dispute resolution um, is a better idea. My caveat uh, is that going through mediation, say, or collaborative family law, is no picnic either for many women, including especially women who have um, had a relationship characterized by power imbalance um, and especially abuse. And unless you have a mediator or collaborative lawyers who are very, very attentive to all the complexities of abuse and how they can play out in a very nasty fashion in relation to negotiations on child custody and property matters and support and so on, using these out-of-court processes can be very risky for abused women and, and even some with you know power imbalances uh, based on gender or based on economic inequality or, or whatever it is. And... Um, I guess to try to make that a bit more specific, especially in mediation, but also in collaborative family law, there's a lot of pressure on parties to agree to things, to come to an agreement. That's the whole goal, to stay out of court. And, you know, it's often a process of give and take, but um, what we do see sometimes is women agreeing to things that are not ultimately safe for them or maybe their children. And um, sometimes, you know, agreeing to give up on some economic uh, remedies in turn for getting some other aspect in the agreement that they, they want. So bottom line is mediation and collaborative law sound lovely and they can be. They can work really well for people who don't have terribly difficult 
disputes to resolve, but they can be a real nightmare if you're dealing with an ex-spouse who is manipulative or, I don't know, more articulate than you are or, you know, any of those kinds of uh, things. Not to mention if it's been an abusive spouse, there are all kinds of subtle signals that they can give that a mediator who's very well trained might notice, but lots of people might might not notice at all. And, you know, who's really there to assist a woman in that kind of negotiation? Yeah, right. Yeah. And I mean, these are issues that feminists have with restorative justice processes in general and mediation as a solution, because if the person doing the mediation doesn't Mm -hmm. really understand the dynamics of abuse or doesn't spot the manipulation going on, it can be a really bad situation for the woman. Um, Of course, the problem, can I just add, the problem, of course, is we can't either guarantee that going to court is going to work because there are plenty of judges who don't necessarily have the appreciation of the complexities of things like abuse and how they play out. So, you know, it's, it's a problem... I guess what we would want to say mostly is people tout mediation and collaborative law as being so much better than court. And I guess I see problems in in both and biases that can come out in in both types of processes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And of course, like, you know, as you mentioned, money is a real factor here in this conversation. And I don't know that that's discussed very much in mainstream media when we're talking about this act like who the people who are going to be seeking out mediation or collaborative family law instead of going to court from the sounds of it are people who don't have uh economic privilege you know people who are working class or maybe even middle class just because the court process is so expensive mm-hmm. so i'm i'm wondering how women who are poor or working class are impacted by all of this i mean like you said, you know, I don't, the court is totally inaccessible to most people, I would think. I mean, it's something that I would never be able to access and never mind, you know, women who are living in poverty. So, you know, how does this all factor in? I wonder if this is even part of the discussion. Yeah, it's, um, it is interesting. I don't feel like in the media coverage so far, I have seen too much attention to the impact of poverty. Um, I mean, it's a well-known problem within, I guess, the frontline worker community who work with um, women going through family law disputes. And I should say, for that matter, you know, men too. Um, And uh, in fact, one of the I mean, I'm not a huge <laughs> fan of many elements of the Father's Rights Movement, but uh, one of the points they have made over the years is that for at least some men, um, you know, being asked to divide property and pay child support and all of this is just uh, really difficult to do because the family income wasn't really big enough in the first place. You know what I mean. So, you know, the poverty can affect a man exiting a relationship as well. But turning back to women, um, you know, here's an example going back to our discussion about out-of-court processes. You know, collaborative family law has been the hot new thing for many years now. 
and it's much touted as being such a great process. But the very requirement of collaborative law is that each party has to have a lawyer. And given what we've just been talking about, how accessible is that? Um, most people, you know, like you see many many of the cases that even did make it to court, you quite often notice that one party might have legal representation, but the other does not. So um, I actually think there's almost like a hierarchy of dispute resolution being set up. I mean, as you mentioned earlier, those who have uh, plenty of resources might be able to consider court, but that's a, a pretty slim segment of our society. Um, collaborative law, again, if you have to have a lawyer, I doubt legal aid is going to be covering very much of, of those sorts of costs. So I'm not sure how for how many you know, ex-spouses collaborative law is going to be accessible. And then so maybe mediation because sometimes it is offered at uh, what is perceived to be a cheaper rate or some family dispute resolution centers may, I'm not even sure about this, offer it for free. But, um, yeah, it's I, I think class or poverty, financial constraints are huge issues here. And, you know, you not uncommonly hear that people going through uh, divorce or separation where they have lots of disputes, you know, essentially lose so much money as a result of trying to go through these processes. It's really, really problematic. Uh, for and, and also, I guess just to point out, for a woman who has been the secondary earner in a couple uh, or has dropped out of the labor force for some period of time uh, to care for children, she's going to be really in a difficult position. And um, we, you know, we know women still experience more economic inequality than men, generally speaking. And so this, too, is a very gendered phenomenon that people don't seem to talk about very much. Mm-hmm. And, you know, speaking of these uh, fathers' rights groups, a primary complaint put forth by by these groups and, you know, by, by men's rights activists and men's rights groups, as they're commonly called today, um, is that in custody battles, the court favors women and men automatically lose out no matter what. Would you say there's any truth to this? I mean, do women usually win custody battles? Um, well, as I mentioned when we were talking about the nineteen, the pre nineteen sixty eight situation, even during the period in the nineteen fifties and so on, when people said there was some form of maternal presumption, my research doesn't support that that was true. Now, that doesn't mean that women didn't generally get custody of children after a divorce, precisely because. There were all those assumptions, especially in that period, that women, that mothers should be devoting themselves to child care. And because more women were not in the labor force and marriages and men tended to be, um, I think just in, in practice, children ended up being with mothers more often. So what statistics we had, I think, reflects that social phenomenon. Just going back to the the numbers issue, um, statistics on divorce and custody and so forth in Canada 
are really difficult to pinpoint in in Canada especially. Actually, Canada does not even any longer keep track of statistics on uh, custody decisions anymore. I forget when, but maybe about a decade ago, they just stopped producing those statistics because I used to, every year, kind of keep track of them and try to make sense of them. Um, and I'm talking about Statistics Canada here. Um, when I was still trying to keep track of those trends, generally speaking, between the 1970s, say, and the late 19, and well, even up until into the 2000s, the general trend was away from maternal custody. But it wasn't going so much towards sole custody for fathers. Instead, the figures were showing increased numbers, quite marked increased numbers, in favor of some form of joint custody. So both parents essentially having some custody. So I think there are plenty of answers to um, what is touted by the men's rights activism as bias against men. Also, quite a few researchers have tried to examine case law uh, and decisions in relation to child custody, and um, many have found that there's no evidence of gender bias, certainly not against men. Um, And, you know, what's interesting about this complaint is that women on average in families where both parents are working even still do a significant majority of child care even today. Um, But then, you know, suddenly when it comes to custody disputes, men and or some men, I should say, and these men's groups complain that they're being treated unfairly. They're not getting fair access to the kids. You know, why do men suddenly decide they want to become equal partners in caregiving when a divorce happens? Yeah, and it's ironic, isn't it? Because, you know, since, well, the early 70s, late 60s, lots of women have been trying to get men to become equal partners in caregiving for children, right? So that is something that many, you know, feminists have been calling for. So uh, in this field, what does get up my nose is that, as you say, it tends to be at this point of separation or divorce when a relationship falls apart that men suddenly decide they want to become equal partners in care for children. And actually, what also bothers me is that it seems like our our social and legal policies are sort of saying that too. I don't know if we have really robust social and legal policies trying to encourage parents to share care of children while their relationship is intact, but all of a sudden on divorce, that seems to be the big impetus. You know, children have to be with the fathers as much as possible, or they're going to be somehow damaged. Um, Mm. I think the reason that men have more often tried to claim joint or equal custody or some form of shared parenting um, upon divorce or separation is perhaps twofold. I mean, to put a positive spin on it, some men have become more involved with children, and we've been sending out a lot of messages that, you know, we want fathers to be involved with children. So it might be a little bit that, but a, a slightly more sinister interpretation is um, in the late 1990s, um, we saw some changes to legislation that made it somewhat 
easier for mothers to claim child support from fathers. And uh, there was some enhanced enforcement put in place and so on. And um, a lot of people suggest that one reason some men, I don't want to paint all fathers here with the same brush, neither do you, I know, um, some men are wanting shared parenting or joint custody because then their child support obligations tend to be less. And mm. so there's there's almost, it's kind of ironic, right, in strengthening the child support obligations, and usually child support is more often paid by men uh, because, again, they are the higher income earner as a rule. So in strengthening those obligations that men have more so than women, it's like we've created an incentive to um, for them to try to get more equal care of children because then they want to pay as much child support over to their ex-partner. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wonder, you know, you mentioned earlier that, you know, while mediation processes can can be, I guess, less than helpful to women. Again, if the person who is running that process doesn't understand power dynamics between men and women, doesn't understand the dynamics of an abusive relationship, doesn't see that perhaps one person is more manipulative or articulate than the other and therefore able to spin things in their favor. But what would you change if you could in terms of the way And you said, you know, there's problems in court, too. It's not, you know, Mm -hmm. judges can be bad on these things also. So what would you change if you could in terms of the way that courts deal with these cases, you know, particularly, again, in terms of custody? So, well, let's, let's separate that out a bit. First of all, in terms of resources that I think could help support women and families through these types of disputes, which are really, really hard on everyone. Um, I'd actually refer here to a doctoral thesis that was done at SFU, I think in late 2017, no, 2016, by Rachel Trelor, T-R-E-L-O-A-R. And she was talking about high-conflict divorce and in particular parenting disputes. And part of her dissertation was geared towards looking at what would help people come through the other end of these disputes in a healthier manner. And so, as I recall, some of the things she was uh, arguing for and recommending was access to a free advocate who would be with you, whether it was in a mediation or in a, a court case, you know, just that kind of support. Because people, you know, often just get so you know, discombobulated by what's going on. It's hard to think straight. And so her research found that where people did have somebody supporting them, um, it was helpful. She also pointed out social supports and friendship networks. A lot of people lose friends in the process of going through divorce, right? And if there's a long custody dispute, you know, I've seen this myself. People can lose friends because people think you're obsessing um, and it goes on and on. So she talked a lot about those sorts of non-legal supports, I guess. Obviously, if we're talking about a woman leaving an abusive relationship, you know, the more supports to battered women's support services and 
you know, those sorts of things, transition houses, the better. Um, I think we know all that already, but we know there's not enough um, of that available, although I think the British Columbia government just denounced some more initiatives in that regard. Um, and then if we move to, you know, what would I like to see courts do better? I mean, I think it's implicit in everything we've talked about. I would like to see judges and mediators and lawyers and everyone take, far more account of abuse dynamics than they currently do. Um, I guess that means that we need to keep lobbying, as has happened for a long time, for more and better education uh, in law schools, in judge schools, um, for those who are going into things like mediation or collaborative law. Um, I just think there's still a shocking level of ignorance out there about what someone goes through, especially if they're leaving an abusive relationship and how that then can play out in all of these other types of legal processes that we're discussing. Yeah, so I think that's what I would say about courts. Mm -hmm. And finally, in terms of this bill in particular, what would you add or change in Bill C-78 before it passes, if you could, mm -hmm. in order to create better divorce laws in Canada, you know, what would you suggest to the, the Liberal Party? Yeah, so I've, I think I've hinted before, I am quite critical of the friendly parent and maximum contact rules, which have been retained uh, in this uh, reform bill. So I would prefer to see those removed entirely but if not, then I think it should be written into those sections, you know, subject to or ex excluding cases where family violence is involved, something to make it clear that those ideas about children needing maximum time with both parents and each parent being friendly towards the other and encouraging contact, that's all great, but it doesn't work so well if we are talking about an abuse situation. So I'd like them either to go out or be made very much subject to uh, the family violence provisions. Implicitly, they are subject to the family violence provisions, which are in the best interest of the child test, but I think it needs to be spelled out because my research shows that unless it's really spelled out clearly, it doesn't get taken seriously. And then we haven't talked about this, uh, but there are, I think, some problematic provisions on relocation uh, that event again come back to this assumption that shared parenting um, is best, and I think another look has to be given to the burdens of proof that they've introduced there. But that's probably the subject of another conversation. Alrighty, well, this is lots of really good information. Um, I've learned a lot. <laughs> I didn't really know anything about divorce law in Canada. It's a complex so, area. <laughs> It really is. And it, I mean, it's so important because so many people go through divorces and it has such a big impact on women's lives um, and the lives of children, of course. Um, so I really appreciate you explaining this all to me and, and helping to clarify these issues for our listeners. Okay, thank you. It's been a pleasure. You just heard an interview with Susan Boyd, Professor Emerita at the Allard School of Law at the University of British Columbia and author of Child Custody, Law, and Women's Work, and Autonomous Motherhood, a Socio-Legal Study of Choice and Constraint. 
That is all the time we have for today. I'm Megan Murphy. Thanks for tuning in to Feminist Current. You can find us online at feministcurrent.com, tweet at us at feministcurrent, or send us an email at info at feministcurrent.com. We are hosted by Libsyn, and you can subscribe to the Feminist Current podcast anywhere you like to listen. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, and beyond. You can even give us five stars and a review on iTunes. Show the world radical feminism is worth listening to. Feminist Current is a syndicated show produced and edited by myself, Megan Murphy, out of Vancouver, BC. If your station would like to air Feminist Current, you can find episodes at audioport.org. And finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, consider making a donation to support our work. Just visit feministcurrent.com and click the donate button.